0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9 Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at kuci.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. Winner of the first Neil Postman Award for Career Achievement in Public Intellectual Activity. Douglas Rushkoff's 10 best-selling books on new media and popular culture have been translated in over 30 languages. They include Siberia, Media Virus, Playing the Future, and Coercion, winner of the Marshall McLuhan Award for Best Media Book. Rushkoff has written and hosted two award-winning frontline documentaries, Merchants of Cool and The Persuaders. His latest book, Life Incorporated, How the World Became a Corporation and How to Take It Back, traces how corporations went from a convenient legal fiction to the dominant fact of contemporary life. Douglas Rushkoff, welcome to Weekly Signals. Hi, good to be with you. How are you doing today? All right. Yeah, well, You're in New York right now, right? I am, yeah. yeah. Are, are things, good, uh, things good back there? Are things good? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Depends who you talk to. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm talking to you, Douglas. Yeah. <laughs> They're fine for me. I'm yeah? I'm sitting pretty. Yeah, well, that's that's
1: good. Are you? Are things going well with the book tour? Yeah, I mean they're they're intense. I mean I'm doing a heck of a lot of media. I, if I if I had written a book on how to exploit markets or how to do marketing, I think I'd be selling more copies. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but I'm definitely reaching a lot of people with the ideas, which is you know the real reason to write something in the first place. Oh,
0: great. Now now. Uh, you were mugged. Tell tell us the the story about the inspiration for this book.
1: Yeah, it was funny. I was mugged on Christmas Eve in front of what was then my uh, a rental apartment in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and uh, it was actually an interesting mugging because I mean he had a gun and everything, and I was, you know, thinking about you know how to make sure he didn't kill me. So I, I actually I asked him for uh, to give me my health insurance card back as if to. Somehow place myself as you know another another little guy against the man. You know, I told wow. him I needed it for my for my treatments, and um, it kind of uh, I, I think I got a little bit of sympathy. I knew after he gave me back my health insurance card, he wasn't going to kill me anyway. And then um, I posted what happened on a uh, on an email list, a sort of nice crunchy, what I thought was sort of left wingish, uh, uh, local list of, you know, parents of the neighborhood checking out, you know, breastfeeding strategies and such. Uh, I posted where I'd gotten mugged and when it happened, and the first two emails I received in reaction were from homeowners angry that I had posted the address of where i had gotten mugged because this could negatively affect their property values. Oh, God. And it wasn't the inspiration to write the book, but it certainly... uh, it. changed what I was going to write about. I mean, originally, I just wanted to write about money as a medium and yeah. how we had mistaken money for a real thing. You know, that rather than it being money, it's it's just a kind of money that's, you know, printed, created with certain biases and leads to certain kinds of behavior. But what I became interested in then, then was really how human beings had internalized corporate values. You know, the way that these people cared more about the short-term asset value of their property than the long-term experiential value of their homes. You know, and how would we become so disconnected from real life and replaced it with these market values?
0: Well, how did that happen? You know, go back to the very beginning of corporations and tell, tell us how that, that uh, relationship started where where, where, we're actually moving ourselves outside of ourselves.
1: Well, you know, people were actually doing, doing pretty well at commerce before corporations. This was in the late Middle Ages. While they certainly had their problems, they, um, commerce was not one of them. You know they, they made stuff and traded stuff and sold stuff, and they had currencies that they really developed locally that were based on how much grain you brought to the grain store. You got currency and you traded it. And there was this tremendous rising middle class of merchants and uh, uh, even even farmers, people were just getting wealthy, and the problem with people getting wealthy by creating value is that the rich who who really hadn't worked in five centuries, you know were really having a problem. The rich were getting relatively poor compared to how wealthy the middle class were getting, and they needed to create a way to prevent all of this free market competition, all of this great uh, all of this great free enterprise that we we think we're celebrating today. Yeah. So the way they the way they stopped it was by creating chartered monopolies. What they did was they picked the merchants who they thought would be loyal to them, and they said, Look, do you want an exclusive monopoly over the West Indies? Do you want a monopoly over rope? Do you want a monopoly over tea? And they, in return for granting monopoly power to to specific companies, these kings and aristocrats got investment. They got shares in the company. And then we ended up really changing our economic landscape from this one of sort of many companies competing with each other to innovate um, to a, a, a really a landscape of fixed corporations just looking to extract value from the regions that they had already been given uh, monopoly power over.
2: To me, when I, when I think of corporations and what you're describing here, uh, what, I, what comes to mind are the British. Uh, I know that yeah. Europeans in general were involved in this practice, but it seems to me that the British sort of refined it to the, to uh, to its sort of uh, exalted place that it has today. Is yeah, that, well, is depends
1: that, where you live. You know, if you lived in in Sri Lanka, you'd say it was the Portuguese. You know, if you, if you lived in in Algiers, I guess you were somewhere. You'd say it was the French. You know, so in America, we we. We think of it as the, as the British. I mean, the British were really good at it. I mean, here's this little island nation that ends up, you know, dominating so much of the world. But the way we experienced it in America was, you know, if you were a cotton farmer in one of the colonies, you know, you could sell your cotton, but you had to sell it to the British East India Trading Company. You couldn't take your cotton and sell it to another company, uh, you know, that a colonist owned. You couldn't take the cotton and make fabric out of it or sew mittens out of it and then sell it to other people, you had to sell your cotton at rates that were established by the company, by British East India Trading Company, who would then ship it back to England, make it into fabric, sew it into hats or mittens or whatever, and then ship it back to America, where then you could buy it as a hat or as gloves. So you weren't allowed to create value out of the stuff that you made, because some company, one company or another, that had been mandated by the throne, was in charge of that region. So that's why, you know, we look. You know, that's why we had our revolution. Really, it wasn't against uh, the king as much as the corporations he had, uh, uh, you know, chartered to monopolize our value creation.
2: Well, and well, the reason I brought the British up as well, in addition <laughs> to our own experience, which I, I completely agree with what you're saying, is that. Uh, They were extremely good at coming up with ways to dominate the world, to sort of enforce uh, what, you know, if you look at a map today, it's hard to believe that a country the size of England could have exerted that much power in the world. But they also came up with some very creative ways of manufacturing money. And I always come back to this This as a frequent example of mine, is they created the idea and concept behind insurance. The first insurance companies in the world were British. And this idea of manufacturing, essentially manufacturing money for, for an idea, for a sense of security, was pretty ingenious. And, and it, these companies became some of the largest uh, corporations in the world at the time of their operation. And essentially, they were trading on fear, on this idea that if something happens, uh, you'll need them. And uh, I just, it, it, to me, it always struck me as a very clever and creative way of exerting dominance over over someone where you have to manufacture nothing at all
1: right I mean well that was the that was the object of the game and that's why we have to really and, and we on the on the left i don 't even think i 'm a lefty anymore are really bad at distinguishing between um, business and 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 this kind of exploitation this kind of, of you know corporatism you know it 's one thing to make stuff and trade stuff it's another to want to get wealthy purely by having money. You know, the Renaissance-era reforms to commerce, what I've started to call corporatism, are really about how do we make it so that people who have money can make money by having money and not by creating value. Mm-hmm. And what we did was we we developed an economy that really rewards investors over uh, People who do things, you know, and and it's ended up slowly overtaking the American economy, so that now our speculative economy, our investment economy, is bigger than our real one. You know, America's number one product is debt, and debt is not a good product. You know, only if there's just a few kings with a monopoly currency system who can use their monopoly to meet out investment dollars to companies that need it, that's the only time that something like that works. It doesn't work when you have an entire population trying to passively invest in 401k plans, thinking that every American is going to somehow be rewarded simply for having capital. You know, it just doesn't work like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, We're speaking with Douglas Douglas Rushkoff. The book is Life Incorporated, How the World Became a Corporation and How to Take It Back. Uh, just a minute ago, you said you don't think you're a lefty anymore what what's
1: uh, pushed you a- away from that well, a few things i mean it doesn't mean i'm a righty either yeah. I mean, what what you know i'm i mean i on the one hand i'm a, i'm a big believer in the free market I just wish it were free okay. i'm a big a big believer in you know in in uh uh competition fueling innovation in industries as long as you're allowed to compete. I mean so I came to look at corporations as anti-competitive rather than competitive. So uh, you know it's, it's a strange place to be because huh. I can go okay I'm I'm against corporations and I'm against central banking but I'm for commerce and I'm for money. So so where does that you know where does that place a person? I you know believe in the rights of workers but I don't know that, that associating with a tremendous trade union, which is an an entity almost as abstract these days as GM is, mm-hmm. is the best way to uh, uh, engage as a worker in, in, in fighting for your rights.
2: Don't you think we have a, a glaring example of the things that you're talking about right now? It's right in front of us, and that is the debate over what to do with our health care system, where you have major corporations with vast sums of money— who are heavily invested in Congress to the tune of $100 million a year investing and blobbing and, and providing them with ca- campaign finances. And and they're trying to make an argument that you, me, meaning you and me and the American people, really don't want an option, which is to allow us to, to take a public health care option. They're trying to argue that this is bad, the bad. It's a bad idea for us to have, actually, uh, another option in this debate. It, it, is this what uh, to me? Or do you feel this? Uh, it is an example of what you're talking about.
1: I mean, it's odd. I mean, because on the one hand, a, a public, a, a genuine public health care option, I mean, seems uh, seems like such the corporatist response to to this. You know that that just to combine government and big pharma, um, you know, directly you know, would be Mussolini's answer to the problem, right? Yeah, yeah. So on the one hand, it seems like uh, uh, creating a giant centralized uh, uh, health bureaucracy, at least in the current environment and the current way things are lobbied, would, be, would create the biggest free-for-all for, you know, Lilly and Squibb and the AMA, you know, a bigger one that we've ever seen before.
2: Um, More so than the current I- Medicare system? Yeah, that,
1: I guess not. <laughs> what's that? I guess not. I mean, that's
2: that's so to me. This is the essence of the argument. We're arguing basically for an extension of Medicare to, as an opportunity for everyone in the country who wants to chooses to take that option. Right. A, and we're taking out. To me, we're taking out the guy who's making seven hundred million dollars a year as the corp, the, the head of Healthcare International or something. No, so, I mean, am, am I wrong to say that? That
1: no, we the, are. We are. I mean, so it's really, it's whose lobby is stronger than yeah. whose.
2: Yeah, I understand what you're saying, that it'll eventually morph into some sort of private, public, uh, mega-corporate entity that will be even less controllable than the current system.
1: It could. It depends. I yeah. mean, because, because we don't, you know, uh, it feels to me like a single-payer healthcare, care, uh, you know, uh, system in America would end up looking less like, you know, the Canadian healthcare system and more like no child left behind. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have a concern for it, not from the Harry and Louise standpoint, but uh, just yeah. for the way, for, for in, in some sense, for the opposite, um, the opposite reasons that I, 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 I found that, uh, uh, you know, sort of the, the bigger and more centrally orchestrated things are, um, the, the more ripe, for certain kinds of corruption they are, not, not the less. But it is, I mean, but, but health care is something that you would think we should be able to do um, on, on a government level, and it would actually increase the, the competitiveness of our, you know, of our companies and corporations and our workers, you know, over the, the ones that are supposedly, you know, better than us or beating us now. You know, how can, yeah. um, I mean, GM's got other problems, but how can GM compete against, you know, uh, Volkswagen. If if they've got to pay for health care, and Volkswagen doesn't. Right. Yeah. Well, it seems like we're in a
0: at least economically in this country. And this is a this is a silly thing to say, but we're in a we're in a very unique situation right now. In in that uh, you talk about GM. I mean, we own GM now. Well, that was so, so silly. <laughs>
1: you know, <laughs> we've gotten into a position where I mean, we think that these companies are too big to fail. But uh-huh. once a company is too big to fail, it means it's gotten too big to be let to survive.
2: Yeah, yeah. I you agree. Know, I you agree.
1: can't. Um, that, that the the way it got big was through all sorts of false considerations, through through essentially through corporatist policies, through through uh, you know government mandated monopoly, and that's um, not. Uh, that's, it wasn't through any kind of free market, and now that you've got you know entire towns and cities, Lansing and Detroit, depending on a single company for all of its jobs, I mean that's the thing that we complained about. You know that was wrong with Soviet-style communism. You know that no, you can't do it from one company. You can't you can't centrally uh, uh, dictate everything, and that by creating a landscape that favors. The the uh, uh, development of these, these behemoth uh, uh, conglomerates, um, we end up really we end up you know really uh, uh, surrendering our economy to um, the debt structure yeah. of these sort of corporate names on debt, while um, devaluing the contribution that real people make to the economy that they live in. It's just it's so striking
2: because the. You're, the uh, by the way, we we're speaking with Douglas Rushkoff. The book is Life Incorporated: How the World Became a Corporation and How to Take It Back. I do want to get back get to the point where we're talking about how we back. can take it back. Yeah. But it, it, you know, it's striking. You look around the world now, and some of the major economic players in the world have uh, a, more or less achieved a sort of nationalization of their greatest resources. Look at Russia as an example of a, com- a country that has essentially become um, Russia Inc. Uh, really, it, it, and and it's and it, going back to the oil uh, monopolies of the uh, late '70s, where they had the seven sisters in control of oil, the distribution and exploration of it. Today, where it was 90 plus percent in the the uh, so-called seven sisters, the big shells and the and Chevron's and all the rest of it, now it's completely flipped. Where 90 per, 90 plus percent of the oil's revenue is now generated from countries who control venezuela saudi arabia et cetera? Et cetera. so the, the it is completely these governments are t- much of what you're talking about in terms of mussolini and sort of this merging of uh, corporate and capitalist uh into one entity uh, is is actually happened all around the world to the detriment of our political ability to affect change
1: well right i mean but but I mean, it's funny. I, 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 in the subtitle of the book, I say you know, how the world become a corporation. You know, and how to take it back. You know, on a certain level, though, it's even it's even bigger than these these national economies. Or that it's it's uh, it, there is a kind of a global uh, a, a global corporate state that formed. You know, partly because of the the World Bank and the IMF and the way they create debtor nations that are then forced to open their markets to corporations who come in and build factories that pollute the topsoil and make subsistence farming impossible and essentially force the population to now work for the company. And then if they decide to leave or, or if the workers decide they want more money, um, the workers have no leverage anymore because they can't actually survive without the corporation there. And the GDP or the GMP of that area goes up partly because of cancer and environmental cleanup. And the World Bank uses that in the U.N. as evidence of economic development. Um, now a lot of these places are pushing back you know Africa South America you know China and East Asia you can't can't call them uh, they're not developing nations anymore at least not in that sense we're getting so much pushback we've lost the ability to expand markets in the way that we did before we've run out of places for um, for for the economy to grow you know in the way that our currency and our banking system demands it. Right. I mean, that—that that is the kind of pushback that's going to force us to create value in other ways, to actually create value again. And not in order to participate on the global economic, you know, the, the only reason we wanted to participate on that uh, in the global economy was to make money anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, now it's a matter of survival. How are people going to um, create enough value to get Food and shelter and energy and the stuff they need, and most of that is by rebuilding an economy from the bottom up in the actual places where you live.
2: Now, now, in that regard, in terms of uh, continents with some economic uh, power right now, would you say that South America is sort of leading the way in that regard, in terms of the pushback and controlling uh, more of their own destiny, economic destiny, right now?
1: Um, there, there. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to say. Uh, you know what exactly is going to happen there. I mean, and, and Brazil and and you know Chavez are two very different, you right. know, cases on their own. But I mean, these are you know resource rich uh, um, countries with um, you know middle classes that are really almost yet to be um, yet to be fully established. Um,
2: but you're seeing you're seeing uh, like Eva Morales and some some extent other other leaders in South America are are just they 're saying we 're we're, we're not paying this back we 're not paying this right. onerous debt back we 're going to take control we 're going to take water rights back we 're going to start taking back some of the things that will help uh, as you 're talking about uh, real value in their in their economy and allowing people to have more control it right. does it does seem uh, on the surface, and again, it's sort of sporadic. I, I'm not; it's not even but it, across the board. But, but it's it just, interesting, right? Yeah.
1: No, what they're basically showing is well, what government giveth, government can take us away. Yeah. right. And so, if, if government is, is the the way that uh, you know corporations uh, earn their monopolies or win their monopolies and win these controls, if governments are uh, are the the entities that grant uh, uh, free market uh, access. To, um, you know, to domestic infrastructure, then government could just as easily take it away. It's, it, what is it, Brasilia, which is an advertising-free zone? You know, that doesn't, yeah. it, they have no, no uh, banner ads or whatever they're called, no billboards. Um, it started by accident, and then they thought, well, what if we do that? I mean, that's pretty radical all its own. Yeah. So, yeah, we're seeing that. And this pushback is, is a large part of what's making it less profitable for America to be in the debt business and more incumbent upon us to get to think about what can we actually do what do we know how to do what can we create you know that just pushing paper around isn't going to isn't going to create value either domestically or internationally that this sort of pyramid scheme we've been operating is up and uh, and we've got to look at at learning how to do something. It
2: it just seems to me that given our propensity for for innovation, we do possess a tremendous uh, uh, resources and industry that allows us to create technologies that we do need, like uh, solar power, alternative energy, cleaning up the environment. It seems to me that if the government were, were serious about these things, that we'd be investing in companies that were leading the way, and this is to me the way out for America. It's a double edge. We're, we're helping ourselves and the rest of the world, and we're also creating real wealth, real real uh, value here.
0: Well, right. I, I would just – but isn't it more with the individual? Isn't that what you're saying, mm. uh, Douglas? I mean, is, it, isn't it more – we can't rely on the government because it's going to just turn things into a corporation eventually yeah. anyway. There's yeah. a mindset here yeah. that we have to overcome, and we can't keep looking out uh, – to the rest of the world we have to look right where we are we have to stand in the place where we live and make it good instead of trying to admire everything else around us
1: right well i wouldn't even call it the individual as much as as people Mm -hmm. you know the human the scale of humans you know the individual can too easily become the consumer or the shareholder you know my personal freedom and my personal space and my individual individually wrapped cheese you know it's a, a, it it can get it can get highly isolating and alienating on a certain level i mean the individual consumer is just perfect for a market looking to sell one one of everything to everybody but the human scale is a much realer place to engage um with issues you know and they will scale up as necessary when they need to but it's it's very easy to to kind of uh to want to join a big branded movement something that feels Bigger than ourselves, and it's 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 sometimes harder to see large change um, uh, emerging from real actions that real people take with one another. And I wouldn't want people to to devalue or discount um, what it means to engage with another human being in the hall of your building, what it means to get a bike lane on the street of your town. You know what it is. To, to to stop one Walmart from putting one more business out um, of business, you know that it really does matter.
0: Well, Douglas Rushkoff, uh,
1: well, Mike, go ahead. Can
2: Mark. I say one way to begin to take this process back, or at least the idea of, or more in control of our own lives, is to buy this book. And you yeah, can uh, say that. You could say that. And, yeah,
0: I was just going to say. Uh, that or go to the library work.
2: and check yeah. it out. <laughs> go to the library and check it out.
0: And you have a video up on at uh, at your site, too. Right,
1: net. Yeah.
0: You know? that, n- n- now we're selling it, which is a good thing.
1: Selling <laughs> itself isn't a bad thing, you know? Yeah, no, no, of course not. It's bad Again, where the left gets so confused, it's like, oh, if you want to actually make a living, that's a bad thing. No, that's not a bad thing. They make us think that that's a bad thing. They make us think that that's dirty. That's actually corporatism rearing its ugly head so that we depend on corporations to, to deal with our money and all that dark, dirty stuff for us and big banks and outsource that to Wall Street rather than realizing, no, money is a way of exchanging value, and that's a fine, fine thing.
2: I know, yeah. I, I know you've also been doing some work with Frontline as well, so, so keep up the good work on all these okay. fronts. Yes. The, the yeah. book
0: is Life Incorporated, How the World Became a Corporation and How to Take It Back. Douglas Rushkoff, thanks for being on Weekly Signals.
2: Thanks for having me. Have me
0: back. Thank right. you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature
2: articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan and I'm Mike Kaspar, and this is Weekly Signals.